Welcome to this episode of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, presented by me, Jimmy McLaughlin, a former Downing Street advisor on business and entrepreneurship. Thanks for listening so much to this series. We have had tremendous success in the charts, just four episodes in. If you could leave us a rating, it really does make a big difference. We have been stubbornly stuck on 98 ratings, so I would love it if you could tip us into three figures. Today, we welcome Rachel Carroll, the founder of Koru Kids. Rachel has raised the most amount of money for a female founder in the UK. She talks about how she founded Koru Kids to improve the accessibility to childcare, a system which hasn't been updated in decades and frankly doesn't work well for parents, the child carers themselves, and of course, the most important people in the equation, the children themselves. Having started a family myself in the last couple of years, it is a subject which is very close to my heart, particularly as at the start of the pandemic, my wife returned to work in the NHS and I became a stay-at-home dad to our daughter. It was brilliant to have Rachel on to talk about her ambitions for childcare, how she wants to shake up the career development for childcare workers and how the best ones can earn 50 to £60,000 a year. We also discuss how they are hiring for product, engineering and marketeer roles and how they are trying to recreate those word of mouth moments in an online world. Rachel is a tremendous thinker on hiring processes, so we delve deep into the system that they have developed for that at Core Kids. And finally, we touch on how the pandemic will alter the global landscape for talent and how the tyranny of distance may not affect New Zealand quite so much in this brave new world. We start down under with a young Rachel Carroll selling posies and operating an aluminium smelter. But first, a quick word from our partners, Octopus Group. Octopus Group are advocating to the government that they should introduce a national springboard programme to allow anyone to become an entrepreneur. It should involve a grant perhaps of £5,000 to support a prospective entrepreneur for a few months so they don't just have to jump back into the first job that they can find and can instead focus on getting their new company up and running. This is a programme that the Octopus Group has run within its own company, allowing its own employees to take paid leave to go and pursue their entrepreneurial vision. You can listen to the interview we did with Chris Hulat, the founder of Octopus Group, in episode three of this series to hear how it's where some of their best ideas come from. So welcome to today's show, Rachel. We're starting all second series guests by asking people what their journey into work was. What was your work experience and what was your first paid job? Well, my first informally paid job would have been something around the neighborhood. I was a very sort of entrepreneurial, scrappy little kid and I would do odd jobs. So I remember actually from quite a young age selling posies of flowers door to door, which I'm sure was a safeguarding issue. But I did that. And New Zealand in the 1980s in a small town, it was kind of fine. It was basically like begging. I'm not sure if that counts. Um, I did work experience when I was at high school as a journalist, actually. I worked at my local paper for like a day. And then my first proper, proper, proper job, aside from babysitting and selling sweets and all sorts of things that I did, was I actually worked at our local aluminium smelter, which we had being a small town in rural New Zealand. Oh, wow. That must have been interesting and different. Yeah. I mean, it was exactly like Flashdance. Aluminium smelter was a really 
classic pillar of the community in a very sort of old school way. Like it paid really well. It was really good blue collar jobs. There were lots of people who worked there who had left school at 15, 16 and were sort of in their 30s and 40s, bringing up a family on like really good, well-paid, good benefits and everything. It was the kind of job that I think there used to be a lot of and it was sort of the last of them. And what they would do is they would go away over summer. The, the full-time people would go away over summer. The aluminium smelter had a shortage of labour over summer, so they would get university students to come in. And it was when I was a university student, we were just menaces. I mean, these guys really knew what they would do. Doing. They were skilled. We would come in and, you know, we were kind of 19 years old and didn't know the first thing about anything. I remember one year I was in the lab. That was my job. I was it, part, of, part of my job was to assure, this is incredible thinking about it, was to assure the quality of the aluminium. And I was, by the way, not studying chemistry. I was studying linguistics. I mean, I really did not know what I was doing. And I had about two weeks of shadowing the guy who did, you know, who ran all the lab tests. And he was this really kind of quiet, mousy guy. He was terrified of me. He kept all these handwritten notes and these handwritten charts. And every day he would run his test and he would add another little dot in, in his notebook. And these dots went back like, you know, decades. And you would see these dots that were kind of basically straight lines for about five years. And then I start working with him and he goes away over summer and all of a sudden the dots are like <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> I don't know. I, I do not know what the consequences of that was for the aluminium. I have no idea. But it was, I mean, it was a very interesting experience and it paid my way through uni. Yeah, no, it's so important to have those jobs early doors and kind of give you a bit of an understanding and grounding of the world of work. And so tell us a bit more about your story and how you came to found Koru Kids as well, because it's a fascinating story having just become a father myself in the last couple of years i have also encountered the childcare market and seen the problems that lie there and also the exciting news as well in in the last week also you've just announced that you're going to be expanding outside of london yeah so i am from new zealand i came over here to do postgrad work and then i worked in professional services over here worked at mckinsey and then from there specialized in healthcare and became the ceo of a healthcare company and then at that point, I had my first child. So I've got two, I've got a three-year-old and a six-year-old. When I had my first, I really encountered childcare and realized how difficult it was. It was incredibly expensive. The experience of trying to find good quality childcare was very tough. The quality signals in the market were very weak. The whole thing was very patched together. And as a parent, there was just hardly any guidance out there. You know, you really felt at sea, as you do with lots of things in parenting. And the more I learned about the industry, the more I learned that the problems were also on the other side. The jobs in the industry are really tough. I mean, any parent knows looking after kids is tough. It's exhausting. And yet it's very, very low paid, often disrespected. Often the people who work in childcare are quite vulnerable. Often the paperwork is not in order. They're lonely. There's all of these problems, very little career progression, very little security and transparency. So really, this whole industry was not working for anyone. Wasn't working for the parents, wasn't working for the people who work in it, wasn't always working for the children either. No one had really thought deeply about the content of childcare for a very long time. We talk about Montessori as if it's very cutting edge. Montessori is 100 years old. Just quickly, what is Montessori for people? 
Well, most people know it as wooden blocks. There's a lot of depth in the philosophy. It's about self-directed learning and a lot of play, taking responsibility. It's a really wonderful philosophy, but it's not a complete philosophy for modern childcare. And I think there's a lot more that you can do. So I started noticing all of these things because my background was in health tech, also because I was working at a system level. I had worked in the NHS. I had run strategy for London for the NHS. I really thought about childcare as a whole system. It occurred to me with all of these problems, you couldn't just solve one thing. You had to solve actually everything. That's when I decided I had to do it myself and found Koru Kids. And so our ambition is actually to solve all of the problems that I've just mentioned and create a completely new kind of system for childcare. And that's such an ambitious target, but it's so fundamental. And we talked about on an episode with Chris Hewlett from Octopus, how a lot of the big companies over the last few years have been almost entertainment companies, Facebook, Netflix, Spotify, etc. And actually, people spend a relatively little amount on their entertainment in terms of their monthly budgets. And if you look at monthly budgets, for most people with kids, it will be the second outgoing after their mortgage in terms of their big cost. So what's your vision for where you go? Because obviously, at the moment, you started out looking after the after school element of things and you're expanding. What's your sort of long term vision for Koru Kids? I want to build a childcare service that does everything really, that has a series of interlocking services. It's actually the interlockingness that is the important thing because parents change their childcare arrangements all the time. Like around about every six to nine months, you change your childcare arrangements. Something happens, you know, you change your working pattern, you change jobs. One of the kids goes to school or, you know, someone moves, grandma moves away, you know, whatever it is, something changes. For me, a really great childcare system is one where it can kind of morph and shape to fit your needs, whatever they happen to be. Then what you also need is you need it to be connected. You need the system to always remember who your family is and what you need and to make the whole experience seamless. Because that's one of the problems that I noticed was parents were having to patch this whole thing together. You know, a supermarket might be an example of a thing that does all the complexity for you. That's not the way it works in childcare. You have to do all the complexity. And I noticed that when you ask people to describe their childcare arrangements, you rarely get a simple answer. You usually get a really long, complicated answer. I think that's true. And I also think just the acknowledgement that the pressure that's put on parents through the amount of information that is available to them as well makes it harder than it was 15, 20 years ago. Even the complexity of the information out there can be so overwhelming for parents. And the pressure that is therefore applied can be enormous to them. And actually, even you just saying that childcare does change every six to nine months, I'm sure will be an interesting thing for a lot of people to hear because you've sold this dream of how it should all be perfect and it should just be the little nursery down the road and so on. And actually, it is just so much more complicated than that. And everyone has a whole complexity of different needs. It's almost like a myriad that people are trying to put together that make it so complicated for people. I think that's right. And you don't realise, as you say, you don't realise how complicated it's going to be. I think the simplest it ever is, is if you have one baby and they're in nursery. That's the simplest thing that's going to happen. Most people don't have that. Most people have two kids. At some point, one of them goes to school. Then you've got incredibly long school holidays. You've got after school clubs that come and go. You've got kids who don't like the after school club or their friends in a different one or whatever. 
you know, you've got ballet lessons which end at 4.30 and then how you're meant to get them where they need to be. That's the complexity that happens. I mean, very often parents think, my kids are off to school now, my childcare problems are at an end. And it's just not the case, unfortunately. That is very true. And so tell us, in the last week, you announced expanding outside of London. Presumably, you'll want to be covering lots of the UK. But tell us about those first steps. Yeah, it's so exciting because we've really held off for a very long time. We have received so many over the last couple of years. I've had just such a steady stream of people asking us to expand. And we always said no. It was quite difficult to say no, but I really wanted to have all our focus on getting the service to be amazing in London, which it now is. So we've just expanded a little bit south of London into Surrey and then north into sort of St. Albans and Harpenden. But the next areas, we're just figuring them out right now, but it'll be where you would guess. It'll be like major urban centers, basically, mostly southeast to start off with or in the south, and then we'll go from there. When it comes to hiring, obviously you're hiring nannies constantly, but also what are the skills that you're looking for when you're building what is almost essentially a new category style company that has been so fragmented as we've talked about? How do you recruit for those roles and where do you think you're going to be hiring for in the next three to five years? Yeah, I think it's interesting, especially when you think about jobs of the future, caring jobs, which childcare is, they're probably among the safest jobs when you think about what's going to be replaced by automation. We've thought a lot about what we look for. Part of the thing that is really tough in our market is that what parents want is flexibility the most flexibility they can possibly have. And they also want commitment. They basically want all the risk to be on the side of the nanny. They want the nanny. We quite often will get people who say, I don't want to chop and change. I want one person who will commit for two years and I want them to switch around their days and sort of sometimes work in the evenings. It's really tough to find people who are willing to take on all of the flexibility and all of the risk. Often parents just can't have exactly that, unfortunately. But we do try to get as close to that as we can while still also also trying to be as fair as possible and make this a really good job. So one of the things that we have introduced to try and square that circle, for example, is minimum hours. So when we first started doing this, we first launched with zero hours contracts. Then after a while, we thought, you know what, this isn't actually fair to the nannies. It is what the parents want, essentially. I mean, it's not like a parent said, I want a zero hours contract, but what they were asking for essentially was a zero hours contract. We went through a period of reflection where we said, you know what, actually, we just don't want to do that for our nannies. And so we introduced a minimum hours requirement. So we're constantly trying to balance these interests of nannies and parents. The dynamics that I think is interesting is parents assume that they're the ones who have all the control because they're the ones paying. They don't realize, particularly in the more expensive parts of London, they don't realize what a shortage of these people there are. So they're not in control in that part of London. They really need to compromise. And so what we find we're doing a lot in the marketplace is trying to be that broker. That's very interesting. And do you think that comes down to the sort of cultural respect of childcare that you touched on at the beginning, that it's not seen as a particularly well-trodden career path? in the UK as much. Whereas, as you say, in terms of future-proofing careers, being in childcare is going to be one of the last things that automation gets anywhere close to, I imagine, and is also incredibly rewarding. You know, I always think about it when I pick my daughter up from nursery, that she always seems to have had the most amazing time there. And so do all the people that have looked after her. Far more fun than I have sometimes. (laughs) 
Yeah, I was talking to someone yesterday who said that she spent her entire day on the heath with the children. And she's, what a beautiful thing to be doing. What a wonderful job. No, I agree. I think childcare can be and should be an amazing job. And one of the things that we're trying to do is establish really attractive career development and career progression. So people can start off as an after-school or part-time nanny, can then become a full-time nanny. They can then progress to being a childminder, maybe looking after a small number of children. As they get more experience, they can take on an assistant. They can then look after more children. And actually, they can start to get up to earning fifty or 60000 at the top. That's a very good salary for childcare. That is an incredible salary, particularly because they can also look after their own kid at the same time and just have a wonderful, wonderful job. So that's my dream. What I want is to have a really clear, transparent career ladder and elevate the whole thing. So one of the things that we're doing is developing lots and lots of training across a range of different things, things like emotional well-being and things like resilience and creativity, lots of stuff around play, lots and lots of child development, psychology, positive discipline, outdoor, all of these kind of themes to really bring like an elevation to this. And we do find we've got lots and lots of people who are part-time nannies who are university students often studying something relevant like psychology or something like that. And parents really love them and they get a lot out of the job as well. In fact, particularly during the pandemic, we've had lots of nannies who have said that it's been a real lifeline mentally for them actually because they have benefited a lot from the social contact. I can well imagine that. And you talk about when hiring at Koru Kids and you mentioned this on the 40-minute mental podcast with James as well, that I was really struck by. The three things that people are looking for or are autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And it is a career path which certainly can have all of those. Oh, definitely. I mean, purpose is so obvious. Autonomy, that's one of the most wonderful things about both nannying and childminding. Then we get a lot of people from nursery, actually, who are sick of just being in the same room, kind of doing the same thing, existing under very, very rigid that you do this then kind of like being told what to do. But as nannies and childminders, you can have a huge amount of autonomy. And then mastery, well, that comes with practice. So yeah, definitely achievable. On the building out the platform side of things, what are the skills that you require there? Because you know, you are effectively a, a technology company as well. Where are you trying to hire for in the next year or so on that front? So the main things that we're hiring for at the moment are product and marketing and engineering. So yeah, they are definitely all jobs of the future. So product right now, we're hiring for product designer, which is kind of like UX, UI kind of background. And then for marketing, we're hiring more junior people, but also some specialists. We just hired a CRM manager and we're just about to launch a search for a content person. Yeah. And then engineering, we're looking for senior and principal engineers. They're all very much modern jobs. Yeah. And marketing, what are you looking for on that? What makes a good marketeer for Koru Kids? At this stage in our evolution, so we're right now around about 40 or 50 people. Our marketing team has really evolved. We started off with a bunch of generalists because we didn't know anything about how the business was going to evolve from a marketing perspective. We just needed people who had the right mindset. They didn't necessarily have to have that much relevant experience, but they needed to be able to try out a whole ton of different channels. Now we know a lot more and now we know a lot more about what our channels are. So now we're much more looking for specialists. So for example, someone who just started is incredible at brand. 
friend. She's very creative and she's her background is ad agencies. She is just incredible for us right now, but I'm not sure she would have been, well, she's brilliant. So maybe she, she probably would have been great at any stage, but I'm not sure she would have been right as the very first couple of hires because she has a deep specialty. And so that's something I've seen change and evolve as our marketing team has evolved. And when it comes to marketeering, for the demographic that you are looking at, which is such a going on trusted recommendations, nothing goes viral like a sort of parents WhatsApp group, right? Whether it be for the school or whether it be the NCT classes, etc. That is a whole new different type of marketing that has sprung up in the last five to 10 years in particular. How do you go about getting people to put post in those groups and things like that? You know, the marketing that we almost can't see, perhaps. It's a big focus, actually, word of mouth. Word of mouth in childcare is super, super strong. It's very different to my previous job where I used to do sexual health. That was what I did in healthcare. And there is no word of mouth in sexual health. <laughs> no, no one says I had an amazing chlamydia test. You must try one. So it feels like a real luxury. And our word of mouth is super positive. So the challenge for us is to get more people talking about us because we're very confident that when they talk about us, they say good things. What we're trying to do is we're trying to spark word of mouth moments. That requires more creative thinking, really, rather than brute force. Just to give you an example of something that's working really well right now, we just launched in Stoke Newington, we launched something called the Storyboard Walk. It's a story we commissioned children's book writer and an illustrator to create a little story. And then in the story, there are certain words missing and there are boards, just like estate agent sign kind of things. There are boards all over Stoke Newington with the missing word. And they look really beautiful on the street. They really stand out well. And the idea is everyone's super bored of local walks and we can't really travel that much. So when you go out with the kids, you can go out and try and spot these boards, collect the words, and then you can make a story. So it's like a really nice activity that you can do with kids. It has been amazingly successful. It's just been a total roaring success. That's just down to a really, really great creative idea. And so that then sparks word of mouth about Koru Kids because we're front and center and we're literally all over the streets. I guess that, you know, what skills were required from the marketing team, it's really two things. One, the, the brilliance of that idea and then working in partnership with schools because we worked with schools to make it happen. And then all the attention to detail, there's a thousand things you just need to follow up and make sure they're right to execute it really well. That sounds a brilliant initiative. And of course, do feel free to send this podcast episode around various NCT groups and parent WhatsApp groups, of which I know there are plenty because I'm a member of quite a number of them. So do feel free to send this episode around. Rachel, you have put more thought into hiring and hiring processes than almost any other startup leader I know. And you've gone viral a number of times on Twitter and so on, sharing these practices where the danger with hiring is that you end up having 30 minute chats with people at the beginning and seeing if you get on and if there's chemistry, etc. And actually, very few people's jobs involve 30 minute chats as a core part of their responsibilities. So I just wondered if you could talk us through how you've kind of changed that up at Koru and, and what the impact of it has been. I'm so passionate about this point because I do see a lot of voodoo hiring and lazy hiring, I think. The reason I'm very passionate about it is because I think it creates a lot of human misery. There's so many people who are in the wrong job. It's so avoidable if you have a proper process of discovery on both sides. Like no one wants to be in the wrong job. So what we do is we've ditched CVs and we did that mostly for reasons of unconscious bias. 
we wanted to increase the diversity of our team and we wanted to make sure we were hiring the genuinely best person for the job, not the person who had the right brand names on their CV. Nothing wrong with brand names, but I really strongly believe you need to be evaluated on a level playing field. And there's lots of evidence that if you see Google or Facebook or something on someone's CV, it creates a bias in your head, a halo effect where you might give them the benefit of the doubt and let them through your process when you perhaps shouldn't have. And also it causes you to overlook the vast number of people who didn't work at those places or didn't fit your narrow profile and conception of the person. As a startup, you generally don't have the money that other big corporates can pay. And so you've got to develop the ability to spot diamonds in the rough, like the exact right person. So that's kind of one thing. And then I think also you see people asking each other, you know, does anyone know a great designer as if it's the property of a person rather than a relationship between the person and the role? For me, I think role fit and role alignment is incredibly important and very overlooked. And so our process really tries to put that front and center. There's no such thing as a great person who will do well in any role or any flavor of role. There is only alignment between a person and a role. And that's what you need to discover. So we've ditched CVs. We start off with a small number of questions, like three or four or something. And we basically require short answers to the questions. And that's aimed at very specific points on a scorecard. We put a hell of a lot of effort internally to defining exactly what we want this role what is this role? Like really, what is this role? What are the outcomes? What are the qualities we need? Which ones are the most important? How are we going to test them? If our primary way of testing them doesn't work, what's our fallback? And we make sure that the whole process maps to the scorecard so that there's no quality. If you don't do this, what happens is you end up testing for one thing five times and something else never. And then you've wasted loads of time testing for the same thing, you know, five times. And you also haven't got any data on something that's really important. So you have to do this really methodically to make sure that you've got at least one ideally two data points on every important quality. And on the really, really, really important qualities, you need to like maybe have some more. You then think about how are we going to test for these? Some things are going to require tasks. Some things you can only test through references. Some things you can get in a deep dive CV, however it is that you're going to test for them. And then what we do is we think, this is all kind of working backwards, right? And then we think, okay, well, which ones can we easily test on short answers? So to give you an example, writing skill is incredibly easy to test with a short answer, like is testing literally the writing skill. If writing skill is important, well, you may as well just test that up front because then you don't waste anyone's time. If they don't have it, they don't have it. You're not wasting half an hour talking to someone and then finding out they can't write for a role where writing is really important. We do also sometimes test mindset. One of my favorite questions is, tell us about a time you had a difficult conversation in order to achieve an important goal. And that's like a short answer. The answer to that actually tells you quite a lot because what is a difficult conversation? A lot of people will answer that question with something where when you read it, you're like, hmm, that doesn't sound that difficult. <laughs> you think that's a difficult conversation? That was just a conversation. <laughs> like, and it's like, you know, I had to tell my manager that, you know, I had to give my manager feedback about like a piece of work or something. And like, that seems like a normal thing that you would normally do, but you thought that was difficult. And it also tells you what they think is an important goal. Obviously, you need to calibrate this. So, you know, if you would expect more for a senior role than you would for a junior role, but you can tell a lot from a short answer. So then we separate all the answers so that we don't have the halo effect where you read one great answer and then you mark the other ones up or the opposite. 
So we separate them all out. We blind double mark them so we don't see names or anything. And then we score them. There is then a process of review where, you know, if someone's done a wonderful answer and a terrible one, we kind of just look back into the detail and figure out whether or not we want to bring that person through. There's some sort of human review in the gray areas. And then that's our first stage. And then after that, I don't know if you really want all this detail, but after that, no, we no, go I, think it's, I think it's I think it's so important for people and it's partly the people that are older that are trying to help kids and so on with this process that are still so much in that cv first mindset and it's so interesting to hear about different ways of doing it because i think everyone's going to start copying these kind of models right or taking this much more and you are seeing it so no it's fascinating to hear please Oh, cool. Well, the next thing we do is a phone screen. So the purpose of the phone screen, it's usually around 25 minutes or so, 30 minutes. And the purpose of it is mostly to check role alignment. We're not really checking skills at this point. And so we have some questions that we go through to just really understand what are the career goals of the person? Does this role actually fit them? Because even if they're fantastic, like I said before, it doesn't matter if the role is not the right role for them. It's not going to work out. They might take the job, but it's not fundamentally going to work out. By now, you know, we should be excited about them. We know they've got some great skills. We know they're a really, really good fit for the role. Now it's time to dive deep on their skills. So at this point, the process is quite different depending on what the role is, but we somehow test their skills. And then the final step is the CV review. So this only comes at the very, very end. And that's when we spend a very long time. It's usually like two hours. It's actually meant to be three hours. Seems really long. We go into their whole life story in great depth. This is when we bring the person back in, you know, now we get to know you as a person. And at this point, we're checking mindset stuff. We're a little bit looking for, you know, strengths and things as well, strengths and development. We just want to get a sense of the person, but they've shown us most of the stuff by this stage. And then we make an offer. How do you think it might change and how has it partly changed because of the pandemic? And to broaden out the question a bit more as well, the kind of future of work, again, on the 40 Minute Mentor, you were talking about how you know you could see perhaps you doing one day a week in the office. I'd be really intrigued, whereas the junior people will spend more time in the office because you go to the office more for when you're younger rather than when you're older, like you and I, and we've kind of built our networks already to a certain degree. So I'd be fascinated to hear about how you think hiring processes may evolve because of the pandemic and also just more broadly the future of work and the future of the office. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating that we've been able to hire remotely. I don't just mean us. I mean, you know, everyone in the world has been hiring remotely. I never would have thought that I could hire senior members of my exec team remotely without ever meeting them, but I have. And I think that that experience is pretty common. So I think that's cool. And I think the fact that we're now recruiting from anywhere in the UK is great. We have stuck with anywhere in the UK. So we don't accept applications from outside the UK. And that's kind of unfortunate. The reason that we do that is because it gets really complicated with tax and employment law. And it's just too much complexity for a small business like ours. But I would love it if we could do worldwide remote hiring. So I feel like now that the floodgates have been opened, everyone is hiring remotely, that hopefully there will be businesses that make it really easy to hire people from anywhere in the world. I know these kind of already exist, but the solution is not good enough for us. So hopefully people will solve that problem. I think we will move to a world where hiring is genuinely global and genuinely remote. And that is profound. It's incredible. I mean, it makes it, in theory, much more meritocratic, much more brutally meritocratic, actually. 
excuse the expression, but if you're mediocre, I mean, I don't like to say this about people, but if you, what's a better way, a better way of putting it, if you are a person who would not be the top choice of companies, except that you're in a local market, so you get a job because you know you're there. You're very vulnerable if that changes, and if there's no such thing as local markets anymore, or if it's local markets that exist to a much smaller extent. Just everything becomes more brutal, and that means competition becomes much harder. You know, if a Chinese or Korean scientist is on the same level as an English scientist, you know, and the Korean and Chinese ones literally just work longer. It's somewhat a race to the bottom in terms of working conditions and things. So that's something I kind of think about. I, I agree. Just but on on that though, like it, it's interesting because I think you know, you've had the whole kind of technology information revolution of the last twenty years, and there's an argument there that it democratizes information. Now, anybody, whatever their upbringing or so on, has the same access to information as an Oxford Don, whereas that wouldn't have been the case 20 years ago. But it's still the tools to be able to use that information, which have actually meant that the Oxford Don's career has kind of extrapolated even further. And that sort of person without that knowledge to use that information hasn't been able to, which is don't want to get political, but has has led to some of the issues over the last few years. And I just worry with remote learning that rather than it sort of being brutally levelling, it actually ends up being worse. Yeah, I think that's right. I guess there's a few different currents of change happening at the same time, right? Automation is also happening. I think the tendency you're talking about definitely exists. There will be winners and losers. I'm excited about it in some ways because I'm from New Zealand. We have a phrase in New Zealand, the tyranny of distance. It's actually a lyric from a Crowded House song. And we talk about the tyranny of distance. It's both a blessing and a curse for New Zealand. I mean, it's a blessing because it means that our environment is lovely and pristine and, you know, well, it's not really, but that's the, that's the myth. You know, we have all these funny animals and birds and stuff. Like, it comes with wonderful things, but it also makes it much harder for us to take part in the global economy. The pandemic is huge for that because now all of a sudden we don't have the tyranny of distance when it comes to our telecoms because everyone is happy to meet over Zoom. Like, that's huge for New Zealand. Therefore, it might be huge for me personally, because it makes it more likely that in a million years time, when I'm finished with Cory Kids, maybe I can go to New Zealand. Yes, although there are many, many parents that are hoping that you're not going to be finished with Cory Kids for quite a while, I can assure <laughs> that's you that. Why I said a million, that's why I said a million years. I'm not going anywhere, it's fine. <laughs> Good, glad to hear that. And yeah, we have a lot of government officials, um, MPs listening to the show. I mean, childcare has been a huge problem for government and how you deal with that and we could almost do an entire podcast episode dedicated around that but I just wondered if you had like one or two pieces of advice for the government that you'd like to get across for how we can improve childcare and what can be done through that. Yeah, fund it properly is the main thing. I mean you can tweak it around the edges, there are things that can be done but fundamentally the UK spends so dramatically less on childcare than any other country in Europe. We are the second in the OECD, UK working parents spend the second most on childcare as a proportion of their salary, second only to Switzerland, where salaries are very different. It is an equality issue. It is a productivity issue. And for me, it's very striking that during the pandemic, when all sorts of unthinkable policies happened, you know, can you believe that the government paid us to eat in restaurants in August? That is just literally unbelievable that they did that. Yet almost nothing has gone to childcare, which is a strategically vital sector. I I think it's astounding. 
I mean, you talk about, you previously mentioned to me about childcare being seen as infrastructure, which I thought was a very powerful line. And, and we did see that at the start of the pandemic, particularly with schools. Like when the schools were closed, it meant that barely, really not many people could work at all at home. Like it was just impossible to do that. And that's when the economy had its biggest contraction. And I just think it is one of those shift moment points. Are, are there any countries that have particularly good childcare policies? I would always remember this from my time in government. It would be great to go and try and take ideas and um, policies that work well in other countries particularly is there anywhere that you think has really got it kind of cracked it's kind of no surprise that the answer is sweden the answer is always sweden isn't it <laughs> yeah boring old sweden i did a clubhouse recently and someone came up on stage and she said oh i think i'm swedish i'm calling from stockholm and i think you should do what we do in sweden I was like, of course we should of course <laughs> obviously Yeah, I I mean, I think there's lots of things about Sweden. Firstly, they fund it a lot, although that's true of most of Europe. Germany does, France does, anywhere else in Europe does. It's not just about the funding. The thing that Sweden does that I love the most is that they have use it or lose it parental leave. And if the dads don't use theirs, then the couple as a whole loses it, which means that the dads do use theirs. And it's a significant amount of time. It's months. And what that means is it has a really profound knock-on effect where the baby groups and toddler groups in Sweden have lots of dads at them. The dads know how to change nappies. They know where the medical kit is. They know about their kids' vaccination schedule. All these things that are part of the invisible burden that is carried by women and is part of the reason that we have problems with women not in leadership structures in the UK, which they do not have in Sweden. It's this tiny little policy that has a very profound cultural effect. And if I could change one policy without spending more money it would be that one that is very intriguing that is always popular with governments not spending money as well i uh, thought it might be <laughs> with the treasury no it's very interesting a subject very close to my heart because at the start of the pandemic my wife went back to work in the nhs and i became a stay-at-home dad for a while and it was an amazing experience I very much emphasized the stay at home with it being a pandemic of course it was just one hour walk around the park each day But yeah, I think it is interesting that that has been a shift that's happening, but how you could kind of accelerate it through something like that is a very intriguing idea. And one, which I'm sure we can look to talk about more at some stage, Rachel. But just finally, I just wanted to ask, favourite book that you've read lately that's been particularly inspiring? I know you're incredibly well read, so you're going to have lots. It would be great to hear some of the child development books that you've sent me over the last couple of weeks as well. There's a lot. I, uh, I'm definitely a reader. The most recent book that I read was about a month ago, and it was called Seven Myths of Education by Daisy Christodoulou. She's the head of R&D at ARC Schools, if you know them. She has written this book about, essentially, it's about why knowledge is important in education as opposed to skills. And she makes a very convincing case in the course of the book for teaching facts. Part of her argument is that our curriculum at the moment disrespects and denigrates the teaching of facts, but that facts are actually totally central to learning and reasoning. And, you know, it's probably significant that she she was a university challenge champion. So <laughs> she's definitely a fact knower herself. She doesn't actually mention that in the book, interestingly. I only noticed that when I Googled. I thought it was highly relevant. But I really liked that one because I love things that challenge the status quo. And I've got to say, it has actually changed my parenting. I have done a lot more with my kids with facts ever since I read that book. That's interesting. I also read a great quote from you the other day, which I'll read out directly. But The more I learn about management, the better parent I 
become. And the more I know about being a parent, the better manager I become as well. I thought that was a wonderful insight into a business leader and parent of two young children. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I really like some Ruth Bader Ginsburg referred to parenting as a respite from the law and the law as a respite from parenting. And I really like that. I think about that quite a lot, actually. I think they are. They are really good respites from each other. Couldn't agree more. Rachel, it's been fabulous to have you on. We will be watching your journey eagerly and it would be great if we can perhaps try and do this in person later in the year when things allow. Brilliant. I would love to. Thanks for listening to that great show with Rachel. You'll have heard me reference The 40-Minute Mentor, a podcast by James from JBM Recruitment. He recently interviewed Rachel and he hosts lots of other entrepreneurs. So it's definitely worth checking out if you are looking for mentor guidance. Just search 40-Minute Mentor wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. The mission of this podcast is to help inform people about the fantastic jobs that are being created and trying to present that information in an as accessible format as possible. I'd therefore really appreciate it if you could send this episode to someone who you think might find it useful and interesting. It doesn't have to be just for them. It could be that they work at a school, college, or just interested in the future of our economy. If you could rate us on iTunes, that would be great. And of course, we are on social media platforms at Jimmy's Jobs. We are particularly trying to grow it on LinkedIn. Thanks to the team at Particle 6 for their editing skills, and thanks to George Dick Cleland for the artwork. <laughs>